to episode 1658 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing not bad. I gather that you've been watching some college baseball today. Ben, I've been watching college baseball. You have some uniform font notes. (sighs) I just think that, you know, have you ever had the experience of, well, you know how we used to go to restaurants? (laughs) (laughs) Vaguely recalled that, yeah. Yeah, we used to go to restaurants, and sometimes there'd be a new restaurant that would open, and you'd be excited to go eat inside, because that didn't seem terrifying, and you'd go there, and you'd look at the menu, and you'd be like... There's a lot of different kinds of stuff on this menu. I wonder if they do all of these kinds of things well, (laughs) right? You're like, I am skeptical that you do spaghetti and meatballs and like tikka masala with uh, like equal degrees of competence because those are different kinds of foods. See, that's my favorite thing about a New York diner, which I have not had the pleasure (laughs) of dining in in some time. But you walk in and there's this giant menu that is many pages incorporating all kinds of cuisines. And it seems like there would have to be some massive subterranean storage facility just to store those ingredients. You'd have to have a whole staff of of chefs and people who specialize in different cuisines. And somehow they don't. It just looks like a regular kitchen. And there's like one guy back there. And somehow they serve everything. And it's ready in seven minutes, no matter what you order. And it is one of the most wonderful things about living where I live. And also the fact that it's open 24 hours, which suits me but yeah it's been a while since i've set foot in one and look that that has its appeal right i love a good diner i would never knock a diner but i think that that you'd probably acknowledge that if you concentrated on a couple of specific things maybe you'd do each of those individual things better than <laughs> if you have a, a very wide array which yeah. brings me to my not note. getting the, the michelin star exactly the diner it, it suits me i'm not right. a foodie i like the variety and the fast service but yes if i wanted the best of that type of cuisine i would go elsewhere Right. And so this is my general um, feeling about some uniforms in college baseball, which is that the fonts don't match, Ben. The fonts are different. (laughs) Sometimes the font on the hat is different than the font on the uniform, presumably because they wear the same hats all the time, but sometimes the uniforms get switched up. But sometimes like there's a uniform font and a hat font, and then like the number will be in a different font that is not consistent with the rest of the uniform. And and so I just would encourage college teams to say, let's decide that we are the place that has really good lasagna. And so there will be one font. And that, that other place over there, that they can have good sushi. And those folks can have good vindaloo. But we will all have, you know, some consistency and do it well. But instead, they're like... Young people like variety, and so we will have 14 different fonts and make Meg feel crazy. Yeah, I saw a response to your tweet by Alex Fast because you tweeted a photo of the colonels and their inconsistent (laughs) uniforms, and he said, this is the equivalent of a mullet, casual on the hat, party on the uniform, (laughs) which is pretty accurate. Yeah, it's well, it's amateur ball. I guess it's amateur hour when it comes to the uniforms, too. It's casual. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, and, and look, like, 
most things this year, I feel um, strange and conflicted watching college baseball, more conflicted than I do watching Major League Ball because these guys are not compensated for their work. But then again, I'm happy that the scouts I know are able to work again, but I'm worried for those folks. So there are conflicting emotions and um, a person not exhausted by having been in quarantine for almost a year now <laughs> would <laughs> grapple with them each individually, but instead, Ben, I'm deciding to be annoyed by fonts. <laughs> yes, yes. So we are bringing you our second installment of the season preview podcast series today. We will be talking about the St. Louis Cardinals with Will Leach, and we will be talking about the Cleveland baseball team with Zach Meisel of The Athletic. We'll get to that in just a moment. I just have one question for you. I don't know if you read Blake Snell's column in the Players' Tribune this week. I have not yet. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I will uh, give you this question cold. So the column is titled, I've Got Some Things to Say, <laughs> which I think is just a great title. It's a multi-purpose title. It works for literally anything that you could write. It's like one of those old-timey sports page columns where someone rants about stuff. And in this case, the things that Snell has to say are largely about being pulled early in the World Series last year and also being traded. And he wasn't thrilled about it, of course. And he explains why. And then he talks about how it affected him emotionally and his dad, who was very disappointed that he was pulled and then how it was tough for him to get traded even after that because he had been with the Rays for a long time. And it's worthwhile to read, I think. But this is the question that I wanted to pose here based on this piece. Do you think it would be more advantageous to a team to have the bullpens be visible to the pitcher on the mound or invisible to the pitcher on the mound? Because Blake Snell makes the case here that he was quite distracted and thrown off his game by noticing that Nick Anderson was warming up in the bullpen when he came back out for the sixth and he could see Anderson. So he's jogging out there, he says. He sees Anderson warming up. And I'll just read here. It's like, what the heck? In my head, I'm like, man, I'm making history out here. I've never been this good against such a great team. Why is this man warming up right now? And of course, I've been around for a few years now, so I've seen the scenario play out for our team, including the postseason. I know what's up. Damn, I'm really about to be taken out of this game. This is really happening in a split second. That's all I'm thinking about. I can't help it. I'm no longer thinking about how I'm going to start off A.J. Pollock that inning or what I know Mookie will be looking for when he comes up. None of that. Now I'm thinking about how I'm about to get pulled from the biggest game of my life. And look, man, believe me, I'd love to tell you this wasn't the case, that it's possible to see something like that and just totally, totally ignore it. And I don't know, maybe some guys can, but for me, et cetera, et cetera, it messed up his thought process, it threw him off his rhythm, and it's not like he fell apart at that point. I mean, he got a pop-up, and then he gave up a single, and then he was done. So it's it's not like he gave up five homers in a row or something, but he says it got in his head somewhat understandably. So... Do you think that teams should hide the bullpen <laughs> from the starter so that they do not have this on their mind when they're trying to get guys out? I mean, it seems like it would be, if it is the sort of thing that is feasible, it seems like it would be smart to not put that pressure on a guy. You know, like at Wrigley now, the, the bullpens are sort of hidden away under the outfield 
bleachers, right? Like you can't mm. see if somebody's warming up if you're on the mound, even if you look out there. And and you know, when once you're on the mound, for most places that don't have their bullpens in foul territory, you're not going to be able to tell that there's somebody out there, or at least you're probably not focusing on that. But yeah, the the intra-inning walk back out there could prove to be very distracting. I think it probably depends on the guy. For yes. some for some guys, I think that the presence of a a bullpen warming could be a a little push, right? To say, aha, I shall not not let you bring in that reliever. I shall prove to you that you got him warm for no reason at all. But the problem, the bigger problem for Snell is that, you know, there didn't seem like there were going to be any scenarios under which he could sort of talk cash out of pulling him, right? So that's the bigger beef is that he was going to be pulled despite the fact that he was to his mind, cruising and didn't need to to come out at all. But I think that in in a in a different scenario with the team that's perhaps a little less strident in terms of their usage, that for some guys it would be motivating and you could say, no, not today, because that's how big leaguer stock is like, you know, I do. And then for some guys, it would probably have something of a snowballing effect where they would say, oh, God, yeah. now, now they're up and yeah. they're going to pull me any minute. And <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, you'd think that if there were someone who were prone to just going to pieces when he saw someone warming up, like maybe you just never make the majors if that's right. the case. It's yeah, like, that's a very boy, he point. had great stuff. But as soon as he saw that guy warming up in the bullpen, he just couldn't find the plate anymore. Like if there is that type of pitcher, then presumably he doesn't make it above, you know, a ball or something. So you would think that that would sort of get selected out. But still, like I believe like Snell that that was on his mind, you know. Did it impair his performance as much as he seems to think? I don't know, but clearly he was thinking about it and probably you don't want him to be thinking about it unless like somehow the distraction is good, like it takes his mind off some other pressure or, you know, just allows him to sort of, I don't know, do his mechanics uh, unconsciously and not focus on that in a harmful way. I mean, it's hard to know what the effects would be, but I could see how it would be distracting. Like if there were a third podcast co-host sitting right next to me now with a microphone just ready to come in if I don't land this thought, right? If I lose my train of thought, someone's going to come in and replace me. I'm probably thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I'm about to get pulled for this other podcast co-host, and then I'll be thinking about that, and then that will interrupt my flow, and I will not be able to speak anymore. So (laughs) if we all had this in our workplaces, like someone just uh, looking over our shoulders, just ready to step in for us the second that we falter, yeah, that would probably be pretty distracting. But if you're Blake Snell and you've been doing this for most of your life, then probably by that point you've gotten used to it, even though this was sort of an extreme situation and that it was the World Series and he was dealing. Not that uh, Kevin Cash's past handling of him should have convinced him that the result would be any different. See, this is one of the places where I see very clearly that major leaguers are different than I am because, you know, when I am presented with the opportunity to have help, my general reaction is, cool. (laughs) Come on in. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) I appreciate that so much. I'm tired. What a lovely thing that you're about to do to offer me some assistance in a moment when I could use it. So these are the moments where you're like, yeah, made a a slightly different stuff, I think. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
I wonder what percentage of bullpens are visible in that way from the mound. I don't know exactly. I would think a lot of them are, but it yeah. does vary by the ballpark, as you're saying. And of course, sometimes they will put that up on the scoreboard or something. They'll right. say that someone is warming up. So there are other ways you could be cued into it. I guess there's maybe a slight advantage to the reliever who is warming up in being able to see what is happening on the field. Like, I don't know if that's necessary because you have your bullpen coach and maybe you have some monitors out there so that you can see, am I actually going to have to come in now? You know, do I have to warm up at this pace or that pace? Like relievers are often standing out there watching what is happening on the field to kind of calibrate where they are in their warmup. So There might be some advantage to that, too, but you could get around that if you thought that this was a significant problem for many pitchers. But if it were, probably we would have heard about it more by now, and this construction change would have happened already. Yeah, I think that this is the sort of thing where it depends a lot what your perception of your organization's sort of pitching philosophy is, because I think that for a lot of guys, when it gets to the point that a manager is getting someone else warm, they're probably, even if they wouldn't say, yes, coach, take me out, because again, big leaguers made a different stuff, they're (laughs) probably aware. They're like, oh, we're in the seventh inning, or oh, I've thrown 110 pitches, or oh, I'm getting shelled. And so their expectation is, I'm probably going to get pulled soon so having the confirmation of that visually is not you know not all that arresting because it lines up with their expectations whereas I would imagine that if you have just a fundamental disagreement about what the role of a starter should be relative to your org it's uniquely irritating because you're like god damn it we're doing this again yeah in the world series (laughs) just judging by the body language and the occasional tantrums when pitchers get pulled I would assume that there are more players in the camp that you mentioned that would look at this as a form of motivation and would actually bear down and say, oh, hell no, I'm not coming out of this game. I'm going to get this guy out. In which case, it could actually be a performance enhancer. So maybe we should be (laughs) getting phantom relievers up when you really need to get a high leverage out. Then you get a, a bullpen guy up. I guess often there would be a bullpen guy up anyway. But, you know, make them think that they're uh, on their last batter, that they have a short leash and they just really have to get this guy. Just fool them into uh, throwing a little harder, just getting that out. Aw, Trixie. Yeah, I'm ready to play mind games with my pitchers, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> oh, no, Ben, they're never going to let you manage now. <laughs> Uh, I was so close to getting the call until now. (laughs) All right, let's take a quick break, and we will be back with Will to talk about the Cardinals. So tell me, are you trying to live to be the over-under? Does it even matter who wins? Tell me everything that you got right on the inning just before it ends. I'm your reliever. I'm your reliever. All right, we are joined now by our old friend. I mean, middle-aged friend. Our old, our middle-aged old friend. <laughs> Start the intro over, my God. <laughs> Will Leach. 
a man of many bylines, including MLB.com and New York Magazine and GQ. And technically, he doesn't cover the Cardinals the way that most of our guests in the series cover the teams that they come on to talk about. But he is a season preview podcast institution, so he's gotten grandfathered in. And he probably pays as close attention to the Cardinals as anyone who does cover the team full time, even though he is doing it for free. So welcome, Will. You know, I don't technically cover my children, but I do feel (laughs) as if I have a level of expertise when I discuss them and also am uh, um, incapable of remaining emotionally distant when discussing them. So uh, I'm sure I'll be very qualified to discuss this. Thank you for having me, uh, both of you, as always. You managed to balance emotional investment with objectivity, I think. Uh, let's go with that. As long as, as long as there are no follow-up questions, yes. <laughs> yes, I do. So for months, it seemed like the Cardinals were determined not to spend a cent this winter, which seemed to preclude them from making any moves. But what we failed to anticipate, I suppose, is that they could acquire Nolan Arnato without actually having to pay him in 2021. Thank you, Colorado Rockies. Yeah. So from the end of October to the end of January, the story of the Cardinals offseason was that there was no story. And then suddenly within a span of a little more than one week, they brought back Wainwright and Molina and traded for a superstar that they don't really have to pay this season. So they found a loophole. They don't have to raise payroll. They still get Nolan Arnato. So this all must have improved your mood considerably from the start of the offseason. You know, it's nice to finally catch a break. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, certainly, you know, it, to, to be honest, it was a surprise when it happened. And not just because the Arenado Cardinal rumors happen every year and around this time right. every year, actually. So <laughs> I think that it was a, a there was a there was a doubtful even with a Rosenthal report. It still was like, yeah, we'll we'll see. But also not just that, like this really did feel kind of like a potential transitional year for the Cardinals. You know, much has been said about how much of their revenue comes from the gate and comes from how they have they have fans, so many fans that come all the time and, and their their local television revenue people watch, but it's just because of the scope of the of uh, of Bally's or whatever it whatever shady thing that we're calling it now. Um ha- doesn't have like a grand reach. Uh because of that they they are more reliant on gate receipts, at least uh, I guess that's what they tell us. So who why would we not believe them? Um when uh, uh they're more reliant on gate receipts than, than other teams. And not just that, but you know the Cardinals have a ton of money, uh, did have a ton of money coming off the book after this year. Uh, Matt Carpenter, uh, then Dexter Fowler's deal, Andrew Miller's deal. A lot of money was coming off the books after the season. They theoretically would be in the market for potentially a shortstop if they wanted to move uh, DeYoung to third base. Uh, There were a lot of ideas that this almost felt like after the weirdness of last year and not knowing what we were in for in 2021, if there were ever a time, and also no one else in the division doing anything, (laughs) it felt like if there were ever a year for the Cardinals to just kind of, hey, listen, we'll bring back Molina We'll bring back Wainwright. Don't worry, not everything is changing, but uh, it really felt like it would kind of glide in to 2021 and and keep your powder dry until then. So I I actually kind of understood the argument. It's frustrating as a fan when your team doesn't try to get better, but there was logic to it. But uh, I, and I really think it probably required, frankly, the deal that Arenado that they got for them to actually do it. You know, I know, and I've heard, you know, you two uh, discuss this as well. And I think this has always felt more, uh, less like a problem with baseball issue and more a problem with the Rockies uh, issue for the, for the Cardinals to be able to make this deal. I don't think that they, they, they've talked about doing stuff with Arenado for a long time, but you know, John Mozeliak and Michael Gersh, the, the general manager, they are prudent. They're very quiet. They're very, they are very buttoned up. I, I always love the 
time where they they announced the Jason Hayward trade purely over Twitter. Like just like no one even noted any rumors about the Hayward trade, and suddenly it was just announced on Twitter. They're very, you know, it's a small market and a uh, media market that is, and so because of that, they tend to keep things pretty close. I think the reason they made the Arenado deal was not because they were desperate to get Arenado or desperately eager to to make a big move for this season. I think the plan was actually not to necessarily have to do this, but when they got in the situation where like, oh wait, you don't, we don't have to pay him for this year at all, <laughs> and and like at all, and you're not going to make us give. Uh, up, up uh, Gorman or or any other prospects that they had, uh, I think it was almost a deal that they just kind of couldn't pass up. But uh, I don't think this was a sign that like, wow, we've got to go for it now. I just think this deal just made like a ton of sense for them. And who wouldn't yeah. take this deal? Fine. We'll take Nolan Arnato. Yeah, if, if you, you insist. insist. We were going to try to not do it. But, you know, if you're going to have it and have us not pay. And again, the fact that they gave up, you know, I mean, listen, I like Austin Gomber. No offense to Austin Gomber. I, I feel poor, poor Austin Gomber. Like every like every single time he pitches for Colorado this year, it's going to be like, oh, yes, the guy of the Arenado trade. And he's a perfectly fine pitcher. I think it will even be helpful for them. But uh, if that's all the Cardinals had to give up, I th- uh, along with some. And there, there are a couple prospects that I, I don't want to gloss over them but clearly nothing the colonels didn't give up anything that hurt and so i think they just kind of felt like they had to do the deal one of the things that they're gonna do with that money they don't have to pay to nolan arenado directly is pay the angels to employ dexter fowler because they're gonna be fronting a bunch of his salary so i don't want to dim the bright lights of nolan arenado for you but i i do want to talk about this outfield for a minute because you know, Dexter Fowler is not what he was. I think that his utility is present, but he's not a superstar or even an all-star anymore. But you look at this Cardinals outfield, and there are a lot of question marks where the infield got shored up in a really good way, and you don't have to worry about your third-base defense anymore. Now you're trusting in Dylan Carlson and Tyler O'Neill, who has giant arms but makes a minimal amount of contact, and Harrison Bader. And there is some depth in the farm, but, you know, you're you're talking about like Lane Thomas and Austin Dean. So I'm curious as a fan, are you able to summon any concern for the state of the Cardinals outfield or are you just still basking in the Arenado glow and you figure they'll figure it out out there? I don't know. I, I can't speak for other people that are fans, but I feel like 95% of being a fan is 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 concerned trolling about my own team at all times. <laughs> so I'm very concerned. Uh, uh, to me, Carlson is the least of the concern. I think that uh, the only thing that would worry me about Carlson is if, they, is if they get to a situation where they feel like they have to play him in center field, which he can play, but I feel like they'd rather not uh, do that. I think they'd like to just kind of put him in right field. He's got the arm for it and, and just kind of have him play right field really for the next half decade or more. Uh, the the other the other positions are obviously the concern. They love Harrison Bader. Like they they are insistent about Harrison Bader. He actually did not have a bad offensive season last year. The thing about Bader, and I've kind of I've discussed with the, with my colleague uh, Mike Petriello, and of course uh, I say that like no one else knows Mike Petriello as anything other than my colleague. But uh, uh, one of the things about Bader that I think when Bader struggles at the plate, he looks really bad. <laughs> he flails a lot outside uh, a lot outside uh, curveballs like breaking pitches in the outside corner uh, he falls he flails a lot and so because of that because and and you can't kind of divorce that from the uh Rosarina, luke voigt even oscar people are still mad about oscar mercado even though he was so terrible last year like i think there is a sense that and even tommy fam you know they have lost because of the cardinals trading away all these outfielders there is inevitable always just major concern about uh, about about bader because he's one of the guys they kept o'neill i feel like o'neill when he hits a home run it's so 
impressive that you can still feel like you're always dreaming on O'Neal. Vader, even though he is good, particularly against left-hand pitching, and one, that, one of the issues that the Cardinals have now that they let go of Colton Wong is they don't really have a leadoff batter right now, particularly if there's no designated hitter. I think they'd like Matt Carpenter to give it a try if they end up getting the DH, but if they don't have one now, there's a theory that Bader could work against left-handed pitching as a leadoff guy. His numbers are pretty good against them, but really he's there for defense and they want to try it. I, th- I really do think that center field, they consider it not as locked as right field, but they really want to ride with Bader. I think they feel really comfortable with Bader. Left field, O'Neal is the default person, but Justin Williams is another possibility. And obviously uh, uh, Lane Thomas, who has had moments and just kind of is kind of been kind of star-crossed in a lot of ways. They really do. They just don't want another Arosa Arena situation. I'm concerned about that. I would. I would. I feel like they've missed several opportunities. I feel like last year Corey Dickerson was just waiting and begging for them uh, to sign them. Like they've been, and I think Jock Peterson even still would have made sense after the Arenado uh, uh, signing. I know Ben said he went to the Cubs, which I I, I believe are in the Cardinals division. So um, you know the the, the there I they really don't. They they feel like they're kind of pot committed with this young outfield now because they just don't want to. They've they've been so shell shocked by Rosarina and and Voight and some of these other guys that they feel like they have to give these guys another chance. But uh, yeah, there's reason to be concerned about that. There were I mean for most games last year their outfield batted seventh, eighth, and ninth, which is not generally the way. Uh, even if you don't think the lineup construction is a great is a is, is that big of a deal, it's certainly not what you'd like to have your outfielders batting seventh, eighth, and ninth. Yeah. How optimistic are you allowing yourself to be about Carlson, who, if you look at his full season line, it's sort of scary, but you could say, well, how about an even smaller sample? And you can point out that he started very slowly, but he finished very strong, including in the postseason. And so if you slice and dice it far enough, he looks very good. And of course, he is a a promising prospect. So do you think that there is a, a Dylan Carlson breakout coming as soon as the season? I think one of the nice things about Carlson, about bringing Arenado, is now Carlson. I mean, you know, the frustration with the Cardinals' offense is, you know, they added Goldschmidt, but it still felt like they were a piece or two missing. The hope was Carlson was going to be that. Really, from the minute he showed up last year, it was like, okay, fine, this is the person they were waiting on, and he did struggle. Now he struggled in kind of a strange way. It was not so much that he was overpowered as much as you know he's a patient hitter. He's uh, that he, he, you know, I don't know if you've heard this, but you know, he's a son of a coach and son of you know how sons of coaches are. So like he's very, you know, he but he's certainly a very disciplined hitter, and he and he's he's very very selective and very kind of patient. And I think that kind of worked against him a little bit when he, when he, when he first started, when he came back, I mean, he was betting fourth for them in the series against the Padres. I mean, they, they cleared by that, at that point he'd gotten, gotten it locked in. Even when he was struggling, he would show enough flashes to where, you know, this is not like someone like O'Neill who will get hot for a week and then disappear for three weeks and then ha- have this monster home. Where you're like, Oh, there you are. He's back. And then he'll struggle for a long time. I think the, Car- so much of the selling point with Carlson is he has a consistent approach that they feel very repeat that, that's very repeatable. So I am less concerned about him, particularly now that Arenado's there, because the worst case, even when Carlson was really struggling, he was still able. Like the batting eye was still there. Like the like the the you know he. The, it's not like the skills were gone. They feel he's a very got a Cardinals guy in in a lot of ways, and so it, it makes a lot of sense for him to uh, to not have to be the star now. And that, now that Arenado's there, there was probably too much put on Carlson because they just the outfield was such a problem and. 
and they lost all these young outfielders that they were, they were there was a hope for him. But uh, I'm I'm less concerned about him than anyone else uh, in in the lineup, particularly uh, excuse me in the outfield, uh, particularly because again Arenado there uh, put takes a lot of pressure on him to be like the the fourth hitter uh, in the lineup. But that that, it, that he's not a fourth hitter, but the fact that uh, they felt comfortable putting him there speaks not only to how comfortable they felt with him, of course, but how there really weren't a lot of better options. Yeah, I was going to ask on the topic of Carlson whether you still believe in Cardinals devil magic or you know whether that is something that is even still cited because I was reading Rob Arthur's Houston Astros essay in the Baseball Prospectus Annual and he has a, a breakout hitter and breakout pitcher metric there. He tries to quantify some skill at player development by looking at breakouts and the Astros rank at the top, but the Cardinals are right there with them and that's over the span of the last several seasons. So some of that was a while ago now and it seems like they've had some issues with evaluating players who were in their system already or players they acquired that didn't perform up to what they expected but they still do churn out the odd Tommy Edmond here there or Dylan Carson you know so do you still think that they are an organization that has that ability to keep coming up with at least bats you know at least uh, better than replacement level bats who no one really sees coming and no one ranks very highly on prospect lists although of course Carlson has ranked very highly on prospect lists but do you still put them in that bucket of how do they keep finding these guys they seem to have a knack for that you know, I'm not sure I ever put them that bucket in the first place, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think this started really with kind of two players. Uh, Alan Craig, who kind of came out of nowhere and became Pujols' replacement. <laughs> like, absolutely nowhere. And Matt Carpenter. You know, these were players that were not highly regarded players. And Carpenter shows up and not only, first is this great on-base guy and then becomes Matt Carpenter. You know, the guy that you would not expect to do that. That's really where you kind of saw that devil magic stuff. And but other than that, the devil magic stuff seemed to be like guys that weren't actually that great but would have big hits in the postseason like i never heard the devil magic stuff more than in this in the nlds where they beat the nationals and it was pete cosma and daniel descalso and just like like no no one looks at those guys like wow how in the world did they come up with pete cosma and daniel descalso i mean everything cosma was a first round pick who was a bust for crying out loud so you know i think that this notion the the devil magic thing to be honest has always felt a little bit more like a funny thing to say on twitter than necessarily a uh, a particularly strong uh, evaluation thing, uh, and, and I, frankly, I think the proof in that is the number of players that have left the Cardinals and been better elsewhere. And I think mm-hmm. I think that like it is. I get that it's frustrating. I, I listen. I love the Cardinals and think about the Cardinals so many minutes of so many days, and I get a little sick of them sometimes myself. Like I understand. Like I, I definitely get it. But the idea that the Cardinals have, I think the Cardinals are good at finding players like Descalso or Greg Garcia was a good example back in the day where someone that's just not not particularly physically talented, but they, they brought up in the system and able to get on base. Greg Garcia is still hanging around. Descalso is still hanging around. Skip Shoemaker was one of these guys back in the day. Well, that, But like the idea that these, like the Cardinals just keep coming up with these great players out of nowhere. None of those players are great players at all, but the Cardinals have been able to find them useful. And because they've been in the postseason, they're able to have these kind of big moments. But, you know, most of these guys, I mean, even even Edmund, I mean, I would argue Edmund is one of the biggest questions in the Cardinals lineup this year. I, I, I was, I understood particularly when when it came that they brought in Arenado why they would be not bring Colton Wong back. I think they should have, and I think you're going to see that a little bit this year because. 
Edmund is an okay second baseman, but I think he's better used as a guy to kind of play all play all over the place. And his numbers were down considerably last year. Like he he was really hot in 2019 and a big player in the postseason for them, but uh, he really was not like he was not really a consistent guy last year. I think they're able to get guys like that that come up come up and start hitting the ball over the all over the place and get hot. And a lot of times they're in high profile situations like Edmund was in 19 or Craig and and some of the and and some of those guys were. But I don't necessarily think that like they're turning low-level guys into stars. They're turning them into briefly useful useful players, uh, but sometimes they can be overextended. I think Edmund is a great example of this. I am concerned about Tommy Edmund being the, being the second baseman, God forbid, being the, the leadoff man for the Cardinals this year, because I don't, I, I think he's overextended in that role, and I think we'll, we'll find out. Uh, hopefully I'm wrong, but I, I think there's a reason to be concerned about that. Well, you've anticipated my Tommy Edmund question, so I will oh, sorry, pivot sorry, instead. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, you gave you gave a great answer. Well, you gave Thank a great you. answer. You know what? Uh, I'm just gonna keep talking, and eventually, <laughs> like, okay, well, what else? Well, okay, let's see. Can I guess Meg's next question? You made every player, Flaherty, yeah. Flaherty. <laughs> it is actually about Jack Flaherty. So I actually yeah. want to. I want to take this uh, in two different directions. So let's start first with sort of the the broader state of Flaherty within the Cardinals organization, because uh, as I think anyone on Twitter noticed this week or last, he has won his arbitration case against the Cardinals, and you could uh, you could tell from the way he tweeted about it that that was um, a satisfying victory for him, shall we say? And I always struggle to put a sort of precise uh, number on how much this sort of thing affects the long-term relationship that a player has with his franchise and if it, you know, alters the odds that he is going to, say, return to that team in free agency if he is given a fair deal or if it really can do some some serious damage to their relationship going forward. So I guess as a, a close observer, what is your sense of the state of things between uh, Jeff Flaherty and the Cardinals? Yeah, I can just kind of go from past the the only other time this has really happened in recent history with the Cardinals, where you know, the, the Cardinals have that practice of saying like you get a natural raise and off the minimum of what they would have to pay you, and if they don't accept it, uh, they, they kind of do what they did with Flaherty, which was pay him a little bit less to end. So uh, they've done that in the years past. Flaherty kind of got it back by winning arbitration this year. They did this with Tommy Pham too. Tommy Pham. Right. Tommy Pham was actually in a worse situation because he was considerably older. Like Pham right. had, had had so many injuries. And had really not gotten going for a while, so Fam really got screwed uh, because of this. And I think it's, it's cost him. And I think, I think led famously to that great Jack Dickey Sports Illustrated interview with Tommy Fam. A, a lot of hurt feelings. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me to see that happening with Flaherty. And uh, I think it was a shame that that happened with Fam. And I think it's a shame that it's happened with Flaherty too. The thing that makes the difference, you know, the thing about it now is. Flaherty is basically betting on himself at this point. Like, you know, he did not have a great year last year. And I think there's reason to think that, again, it was a short season and it's not like his peripherals were completely off. But, you know, the the the, the bet the Cardinals made on with Pham, I think I think that Tommy Pham, it made us, I, I love Tommy Pham, but it made a certain amount of sense because he was almost 30 already. Like, it's remarkable to me. It still feels like Tommy Pham just got here and he's like 34. Right. <laughs> so, like, you know, I think that uh, someone like Flaherty is someone I would want to mess around with a little less in that regard. And it feels, but I also, this is one of the things I like about, I think I think a lot of people like about Flaherty is that there is a, uh, there is a, uh, not only a sense of his own uh, worth as a pitcher, but frankly, uh, I, I, a sense of uh, the market and, 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 and labor and, and like generally the, right. the way the things are going right now, it's one of the things I think is really admirable about Flaherty. And so 
but it, it, it worries me a little bit. There's no question because the only other time this has happened has been with Fam, and that it really did soil the water a little bit to the point where they ended up trading him for. Turns out, like you know, I mean, I think it's not a bad. Like they they, they got Gallegos. Excuse me, they got uh, they got um, uh, yeah, they got Gallegos for him. The the, the Voight trade and the Fam trade. One was for uh, Gallegos, and uh, regardless, the point is, is they got. It's not like they didn't get a terrible trade out of it, but Fam was a really good player when the Cardinals traded him. And it was there was no question that part of the reason widely understood was because there was a rift between the player and the team. Uh, it's clearly, I, I don't think that Flaherty's going to go out and, and rip John Mosellock or like he's a smart guy. But if you, uh, it would, of all the things that happen with the Cardinals, if you were to tell me, oh, they've just come up to a long-term extension with Jack Flaherty, that would be a legitimate shock. I, I, yeah. It does not look like it's going in that direction. And I think for several reasons, and I'm not sure, in fact, I'm pretty certain that the Cardinals are not the ones in the right on this. Yeah, I mean, he's Flaherty has said that he is conscious of you know the the value of sort of setting precedent in arbitration hearings on on behalf of his fellow players. So he is pretty keyed into the broader labor dynamic beyond his own contract here. But you did anticipate my follow up, but I will ask it anyway, so we can tease it out a bit more. Which is that you know, as you noted, he had for him a, a down year, albeit in you know forty and a third innings. So I think it's fine for us to look at that sort of sideways and not be too concerned, but. You know, he walked more guys and he gave up more home runs. So what are your expectations for Flaherty going into this year? And, you know, is there something that you noticed while watching him that made you think, aha, this one simple trick, Jack, if you just do that. <laughs> yeah, for the record, Genesis Cabrera is the guy that traded Tommy Pham for that was driving me crazy. So, so well, I always feel like the goal of any podcast is to give everyone a moment that they can yell at the pe- the answers of the people <laughs> that they're having trouble. Uh, we do that a lot. So I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad I could give that to the listeners of Effectively Wild right there. Yeah, the thing with Flaherty is, you know, one of the things that was interesting is because last year was obviously strange and Flaherty is, you know, Flaherty is such a uh, a talent that there was a sense, even from the beginning of the season, from the first game of the year, he pitched terrific and looked fantastic. And I think he kind of wanted to stay out and keep pitching. And the Cardinals were like, yeah, easy. You know, like this first game of the year, easy. And his next start didn't go quite as well. And then the Cardinals had their COVID situation come up <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, you know, like, like I think that there were, I feel like it's been forgotten a little bit. There was, there was a moment last year where I thought, you know, maybe they'll just go on with the season without the Cardinals. <laughs> and I don't think it's, it was an unreasonable thought, right? Like the Cardinals had, uh, they were just about to get out of the protocols and then they had another positive and it lasted two weeks. And this, you know, th- there was the Marlins situation, but the Marlins were out of theirs a lot faster. And when you've got a 60 game season and everything's so compressed, there was, uh, I mean, it's certainly, I think at one point, Rob Manfred actually gave an interview where he had to reassure Derek Gould, the, the, the beat reporter for the Cardinals, that they would not continue the season without the Cardinals, which is, you know, again, uh, 2020 was, was bad, but to watch a baseball season continue without the Cardinals playing uh, would have been sad uh, for me. But the point is, is, that really messed up the Cardinals in a lot of ways, and I think it specifically messed up Flaherty. You know, remember, they were in their hotel room throwing against mattresses for roughly two weeks, and I think Flaherty never quite got back on track after that. 
And it's not that he was terrible, but there was a certain lack of rhythm he was able to kind of get into his starts. He was, even when they first came back, they were wary of having him throw more than even four, three or four innings uh, starting out. It was telling that their first game back, uh, first game after they came back, it wasn't Flaherty pitching. It was Adam Wainwright. Like it was a, here's the person that will throw us. I think he threw six innings, which is what they desperately needed coming back from that. There was the, the combination of Flaherty still being kind of treated, being treated a little bit with kid gloves and having the COVID situation happen in the middle of the year kind of just never got him right. He, for the record, he pitched great against the Padres in, in that playoff series. Like clearly the stuff is there. He had, he, he is this, he's, he is Jack Flaherty, but to see it, I think it's less that his stuff wasn't working as much as there just really was never really a rhythm that he got into throughout the season. And, uh, and ultimately it uh, led to, to worse numbers than his peripherals necessarily should have shown. So how are you feeling about Yadier Molina at almost age 39? And beyond that, if and when he ever walks away, the Yadier Molina succession plan. <laughs> yeah, first off, I'd like to give a little love. Uh, I love the baseball perspective annual. I do not know who wrote the the capsule for Yadier Molina. Whoever it is, if you're listening, it was wonderful. There was an analogy to Willie Nelson's guitar that I th- just thought was absolutely perfect. Uh, basically, the idea that, like, listen, Willie Nelson thinks that Trigger, his guitar, is the best guitar in the world. Objectively, that's clearly not true, but would you want Willie Nelson to play any other instrument? And I think that's kind of the, the idea with the Cardinals is uh, – Yadier Molina is not the best catcher in the world. He is not what uh, what the what the Cardinals uh, what what certainly uh, uh, I think there's worries there's there's definite definite worries uh, not just offensively. I think offensively was he was a, it was a little bit of an improvement last year. It's just a minor one. Defensively, there are you see it like you see him getting uh, slower. I don't think there's any question about that. You see you and. Uh, even more to the point, you see more people comfortable running on him. That that fear of Yachty is not necessarily there to the point where sometimes you will see like he'll throw a guy out and everyone will be like, aha, see, that's why you don't run on Yachty. But like he's still like a bunch of guys have stolen bases since then. Like if, if, what's the, it was the old Lou Gehrig idea when he grounded out, uh, uh, Joe DiMaggio, when he grounded out and everyone applauded for him. They're like, oh, that's bad. <laughs> like, and I feel like there's a little bit of that with Yachty a little bit. The way this kind of I thought they were going to sign him to a two-year deal and have that second year be kind of the end. The fact it was a one-year deal I think speaks kind of how comfortable they are with Ivan Herrera. I think that uh, I think he is the one. You know, I know that right now it's Andrew Kisner as as the backup, but I think Kisner, you know, Kisner's already 26. He'll be 27 by the time, and he really has not shown a lot in the majors uh, at, at this point. I think it's reasonable to think that Herrera is the one that they're really kind of grooming for, uh, perhaps as early as next year. I thought they would make that timeline two years, but of all the catching prospects that have come and gone to be like, okay, when Yachty's ready, uh, here we go, uh, this guy will be ready to take over. I think Herrera is the one that they're ready for, and so I think it makes a certain amount of sense that if they can go one or two years— uh, uh, I think I can see maybe one more year uh, with Yachty, but I'm going to, I would, that's why I was surprised it wasn't two years because Herrera feels like he might need a, one more year after that. But he, they are very, very excited about him. And uh, you've already heard the analogies of when uh, basically Molina was groomed to be Mike Matheny's, who I believe, I'm told, used to manage the Cardinals, but I refuse <laughs> to believe that actually happened. I prefer to believe he was just the awesome guy in the 2014 that helped Yachty into, into Major League Baseball and then never had a Cardinals connection after that. Um, and it does feel like that's kind of what they're hoping for is Herrera to kind of be the Yachty to way the Yachty was to Mike Matheny. 
Yeah, being Molina's backup catcher and heir apparent is like being the Prince of Wales or something. It's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, it's not in happening. theory, you're next <laughs> yeah. in line to the throne, yes. but the throne may never be vacated. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I guess that we'll use this as an opportunity to talk about the other guy who they brought back this year in a little more detail, which is Adam Wainwright. And I, you know, I never want to tell fans of a team that they should um, expect more than a, a reunion with a, a franchise favorite. But what was your reaction to their decision to bring him back? Less him specifically and more um, him in the place of some of the other starting pitching options that were available on the free agent market who might have had more long-term impact uh, potentially on this franchise. Yeah, you know, if you would have told me uh, at the beginning of the of the offseason, who would be more likely to leave, uh, Molina or Wainwright? I actually would have thought Wainwright. I think that uh, he's from Atlanta. He's from the Atlanta area. His family here. I know some of his family here. They're very nice people. And, you know, they uh, there was always this thought because he started his career in the Braves organization, he might want to do one last year. A couple moves the Braves made kind of made it clear that wasn't going to happen. But Listen, Wainwright was the Cardinals' best pitcher last year, really kind of without question. He had his best year really since kind of his heyday back in the, in the, in like 14 and 15. Last year was his best season. And the thing about the, you know, the thing with Wainwright, you know, three years ago, it not only did all Cardinal fans think he was done. Wainwright thought he was done. He had a famously awful start against the Padres in like June where he threw like 105 pitches in three innings and walked like six guys, but like just got enough. Like, like you know, the thing with Wainwright is obviously that he doesn't throw very hard anymore, but the curveball is still really good. <laughs> like the curveball still kind of works. And if he can just hit like 91, that curveball is enough. And you saw that last year. It's, I mean, it really should not kind of be underappreciated uh, how good he was last year. And uh, like he was the one the Cardinals trusted in the playoff game and he, and he was good, you know, and he was the one that, uh, that that's two, that's two consecutive years that they've trusted him in the postseason, really more than any other pitcher. So I really felt like not just, Hey, you'd love to have Wainwright come back. It'd be weird to have him another uniform. Uh, you felt that clearly with Molina. With Wainwright, I don't, you know, there, there's reasons to be concerned about this rotation. I don't think there's any question about Flaherty. Obviously, you want him to be a, to to be the ace he was before. But listen, Carlos Martinez has been kind of all over the place, and and you know there have been moments where you think he's about to break through, and then he kind of breaks down again. Last year, he actually suffered; he had, actually was hospitalized uh, with COVID, so he had a lot of issues there. Miles Michaelis is coming off coming off an injury. Dakota Hudson is out this entire year. Uh, Youngwin Kim was really good last year, but he still didn't strike a lot of guys out. There's a worry that maybe he, that's not all going to be that that a lot of the tricks he kind of did last year maybe won't work over a full season. There's reason to be concerned about about this rotation. Bringing Wainwright back felt less like a oh we got to have this Cardinal legend back and more seriously we need can you do what you did last year again because we really could use it so uh, I I think that uh, uh, losing Wainwright like obviously losing Molina would have been an emotional loss I think he's not not to say that he can't contribute a lot but losing Wainwright would have cost the team not just this legend but really arguably their number two or three starters. So I don't think there was any question they were going to be able to, to, to bring him back. And frankly, you know, I mean, he's going to be four, he'll be 40 in, at the end, by the end of the season. Uh, I don't think that uh, if he does what he does again this year, uh, I think they would want him back again because uh, uh, he's really been able to kind of pull it off in a way where everyone thought he was done two years ago and now he's back. 
Yeah, the Cardinals have a couple of perennial, what are we going to get out of this guy, guys? You mentioned Martinez, and then, of course, there's Alex Reyes, and there's some more depth in the bullpen, perhaps, and, and possible reinforcements. Jordan Hicks on the way back, and Ryan Helsley, hopefully healthy, but... Reyes is kind of at the back end of that bullpen, and he more or less held up and was effective in that role last year. So is that just his permanent spot now, and you hope that his arm holds up? Yeah, Reyes, you know, I, I would argue that one of the, the, you know, remember how close, for all the excitement over the Padres were last year, and obviously the Tatis homer, the Cardinals were very close to sweeping that series. <laughs> like, they were <laughs> awfully close. And the best moment of that series, I would argue, was uh, not the Tatis thing. I don't even, I don't even remember that happening. Um, but more uh, Reyes shutting them down in, uh, in, in game one. You know, he came in and was truly dominant in a way that, again, he's shown flashes of he still wants to be a starter. They're holding out the idea that he could be a starter but man you look at what his stuff was doing uh in that closing spot last year he looked like no one could touch him and this is the reyes that people have been waiting for for and listen the the idea that reyes has just been disappointing and not had it together like he's had like buzzards luck when it's come come to injuries and there's been different injuries and there's been uh, like it's it's not like it's one thing that's really bothered him it's always and they've always been a little bit random to see him back last year that's the reyes you were looking for and i you know they always kind of quietly feel like Reyes is their ace in a hole. They've felt that for like four or five years now. You know, they imagined at one point that they would have this, by this season, they'd have this dominant three-man rotation of Jack Flaherty, Carlos Martinez, and Alex Reyes. And so it's just funny that like, please come back Wainwright. So like all of all of how that, that didn't really plan out. Reyes to me is the, a shutdown guy uh, that I think has a higher ceiling than anyone, even someone like Helsley or even Hicks when he comes back. Helsley also, like he had, he had COVID issues last year as well. They really kind of like got him off track a little bit. But listen, Gallegos was like essentially an all-star uh, within a couple a couple years ago. Andrew Miller was actually had kind of a rebound year last year. The, I know there, there are what people wonder about the Cardinals rotation. Obviously with the Cardinals bullpen, I'm much more concerned about the rotation than the bullpen. I feel like there's a lot of arms they can throw that. Cardinals Twitter I have I shout out to Cardinals Twitter. John Gant is good. That's like a big thing that all went around Cardinals Twitter a couple of days ago. It's to the point where the Cardinals official count Adam Wainwright had a comment about it. I came another one of those memes I came in late on and did not know what it was about, but I chuckled along as if I was there with them the the entire time. And again with it when Hicks comes back, you know, the 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 thing about Hicks even before he got hurt was obviously he throws really hard. But he doesn't actually strike out a ton of guys for someone who th- throws as hard as he does. But he has such move on the ball. He actually got a ton of double plays and a ton of ground balls. Hicks, if you know, they they obviously won't push him, but they expect him back at the end of the year. And uh, I think to to me the 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 bullpen is less of a worry than the rotation. So in the wake of the Rosarena trade, which we should say the book is far from closed on that one. We have, don't have a complete accounting, but John Mazalak said we will revisit how we rank our own players and make sure that we don't have something like this happen again. Something like this being not really giving Rosarena a shot and then having him blossom at least so far in Tampa Bay. Did that take away from your confidence in the organization's analytical abilities or capacity to appraise its own talent in tandem with Luke Void and and some of the various other moves we've mentioned? And do you have a sense of where the Cardinals currently sit on the stats versus scouting spectrum to the extent that there is such a thing anymore? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I think they said, I mean, they've had the same people in charge for essentially 20, 25 years now. So, you know, they, they sit where they have always said. I, th- I would argue that's actually like 
it's actually maybe cost them a little bit at times, actually. Like I, this was one of the worries really before the Arenado trade was there was a sense of one of the things I thought was there was a press conference at the end of last season where the Cardinals, you know, had, uh, had been uh, at the end of 2019, excuse me, where they had, you know, they'd won the division and they'd done well, but like then they had that series against the Nationals where they couldn't hit at all. And it was very obvious that the offense was a problem. And the, and Mosellock had this press conference where basically the tone was, you're welcome, St. Louis. And I was like, no, 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 we're actually kind of mad. And I think so when you, when you added a Rosarena that, to be fair, I think it's a little unfair to go after the Cardinals too much on that trade, at least from the fans' perspective. Because when the Cardinals made that a Rosarena trade, the big the big takeaway was, wow, uh, I mean, I guess we'll miss Jose Martinez a little bit, but it's nice to have this left-handed pitcher coming in. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I, it wasn't that, like, look, Rosarena had played and been fairly effective. But, you know, they weren't sure he could play center field and they felt Carlson had one spot and then Fowler was still signed for, you know, for, for three years at that point. They, you know, there were circumstances with the Arosa Arena trade and to get Liberator who, again, you know, these, these trades have long tails. I think there's a lot of excitement about Liberator. The idea that, uh, that, that this trade is settled business at this point, I'm not sure it is entirely true in the same way that the Luke Voigt trade, like, like the Voigt is obviously really good, but Gallegos has been great for the Cardinals. And so I think that like, the idea that they've just thrown these guys away for nothing, I think, is a is a little bit overstated. But certainly, you know, there is a, a seeing a Rosarina do that uh, was a hard thing to see, and particularly when you add it in that like there were rumors that there was frustration with the Rosarina because he famously is the one that was doing the live stream in the clubhouse when Mike Schilt had his uh, uh, his um, vulgarity laced celebration after um, after the Cardinals had won uh, in the the division in in, in two thousand nine that there was some sort of backlash that I don't know whether that's true or not but it certainly led into the idea that the, frankly, the fam idea that like when guys aren't when guys do something outside of what the very controlled and conservative front office the Cardinals do, it, it pushes back against them. I think they're they don't like that perception and they definitely do not uh, uh, they they don't want to make that mistake again in a lot of ways. But I wouldn't say it changed my view of what they're doing. I think they're doing the same thing they always have. I just think uh, uh, certainly the uh, uh, the lack of playing time for a Rose Arena was was uh, was a perturbing if not irritating at the time but obviously it looks a lot worse now i don't want to downplay the off season that they had because you know we've talked about the arenado deal and that's that's quite a, a move if you were a free agent and brought in then we'd all be praising them for uh their you know their great signing but if you look at the Fangraphs playoff odds they right now at least are slightly behind the brewers they were briefly ahead of them in the division um, and have have slipped a bit behind them now and so they find themselves still in this wide open division and didn't do at least enough to put it away um, as much as you can do that before the season starts so i'm curious what sort of your perception of the team is and what you think how you think the team sort of views themselves within the context of uh, the NL Central because on the one hand they're very much in it but they also could be further ahead if they had had wanted to be so where do they stand both to you and do you think to themselves I think to them, I think they thought they were favorites before the Arenado trade. To be honest, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I think you could actually make an argument that the Cubs were actually the, the potentially the favorites before uh, before that trade. Because speak to the rest of the division, but I do think that the thing with Arenado it doesn't fix the pitching problems, which are, which obviously are, are, are a bit of a concern with the rotation. But it really does. 
to you know the the so much has been put on like this like when Carlson came up last year one of the main reasons Carlson struggled was clearly that like everyone was like all right the hero is here finally and he's like I'm 21 please cut me a, cut me a break and and I think that uh, and you know in a lot of ways that was the issue with Goldschmidt like in 2019 there was this idea that he had to carry everything having Arenado in and having him it really solves the uh, it solves a lot of issues really kind of across the board it doesn't solve the pitching issues but I feel like they feel comfortable. And frankly, I feel comfortable that they've got enough arms to throw at the problem. It would not surprise me to see a lower level innings eater guy that's maybe still on the still on the market that they might give a, a try for just to give them a little bit of insurance in that regard. But you know, this is this is a team that kind of everything went like it, last year was a rough year for the Cardinals and in in a, in a lot of ways, you know. And and you know that, that I think that it's almost been forgotten when they look back at that. Like they were gone for two weeks. In the middle of a baseball season that only lasted two months, <laughs> and they only played sixty games, and were able to set, kind of still get in the playoffs that way, and give it put a scare, and in in arguably the most exciting team in baseball last year. I think that last year is seen by the Cardinals, and I think there's some legitimacy to this argument, as um, oh, just a weird year all around. Now, to be fair, I guarantee you the Brewers feel that way, too. Like, a lot of things for the the, the Brewers thought were going to work out last year didn't, I think, will, will be normal in the future. But I think that they consider themselves the favorite in the, this division before Arenado, and this put them over the top. We'll see if that's the case, but uh, I do think that's the perception that the organization has. Well, you know the drill. We end with the win total. So give us a prediction, presuming that the Cardinals actually play all of their scheduled games this year. I would like to uh, praise both of both your Rays and Brewers guests so far for not doing the, no, this is so hard. How can I do this? Which <laughs> I, I complain about every year. <laughs> it's very much like, oh, no, person here sent to analyze the team. Don't, <laughs> don't dare ask me if I have any thoughts about how they might play this year. Um, so, yeah, I... Uh, about 90 feels about right uh, to me this year. They're not quite as good as I think that they think they are. I think that they, I honestly think that they believe they're going to win this division by uh, by six or seven games. I really do th- think that. Uh, I don't believe that's the case, but uh, I think that there's enough there and there's enough kind of like, there's enough pitchers around there. The rotation's going to be weird for everybody in baseball this year like even the most solid rotations you've got to wonder with just the innings leap that everyone's going to have to go through the the cardinal strategy of just having a ton of arms to throw at the problem which i think is a large part of their strategy is uh not necessarily a bad one and so even if someone like martinez can't uh isn't what they want him to be or michaelis isn't quite all the way back i feel like there's enough guys i think flaherty i i, I am very high on flaherty for this year uh, i think there's enough there to get them up to, to up to i would say 90 All right. Well, this is where I take a deep breath so I can tell people where to find you. (laughs) There are so many places. The most important place probably right now for your purposes is in a forthcoming book. Mm -hmm. In fact, a novel. Some have called it a debut novel, although (laughs) leech completists could quibble (laughs) about that. But it's called How Lucky, a novel. And it comes out on May 11th of this year. And it can be pre-ordered now. And probably the easiest way to tell people to find Will's writing is to subscribe to his newsletter where he helpfully collects it all and also does some of his most enjoyable writing every week. That is at williamfleach.substack.com. You can also find him on Twitter at williamfleach where he has his Substack in his bio just in case you didn't memorize that. I think that about covers it or at least comes close. 
Uh, yes, I would like to list the exact URLs of everywhere you can pre-order the book, okay? So I, I want to get all the ampersands and everything correct, too, so just be ready. Uh, of course, yeah. How Lucky Is the Book comes out May 11th. You can pre-order. And uh, I, I swear it doesn't even mention the Cardinals once. There's literally not a mention of the Cardinals in the entire book, so maybe wow. people will actually like it. <laughs> Tremendous restraint. <laughs> it was hard. I thank the entire roster in the acknowledgement. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, as always, Will. Of course, thank you. Okay, we'll take one more quick break, and we'll be right back with Zach Meisel of The Athletic to talk about Cleveland. are back and we are joined now by Zach Meisel who covers the Cleveland not yet renamed baseball team for the athletic he also co-hosts the Celtics Godcast. Zach welcome back. Should we just do you want to name the team here? Should we just get it out of the way and then <laughs> if we, we don't could have settle to it so? right here and right now that would help out everyone I think. I don't know if we have that authority but uh, no one else has seized that responsibility yet so someone's got to step in. I like the walleye. How about the walleye? What's the origin story for the walleye? Um, there really isn't one. <laughs> uh, Lake Erie has some fish. I think uh-huh. some of them are walleye. And I'm just ready to move past this entire topic. So uh, I'm going with that. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. And since we are all going to be dancing around the name and awkwardly trying to rephrase as we do this segment, I guess this is where we can start. So why do you think the organization handled things this way, you know, announcing that it would be changing the name, that the current name is unacceptable, and yet continuing to use the name for this season, as opposed to either delaying the change or just expediting the change, which seems like it was so long in the making that that could have happened. Somehow they have, on one hand, been thinking about this sort of thing for years, and on the other hand, it still snuck up on them somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think over the summer, it really hit them. I mean, well, first of all, we can rewind two years, uh, two and a half years now. They got rid of the Chief Wahoo logo, or at least announced they intended to, and then waited a year and finally did that. But then over this past summer, with all the social justice awareness going on and everything that happened, there was sort of like an awakening, I think, in the organization, and it became more of a pressing matter. And so I think then they got caught in between knowing they wanted to make some sort of change, but still wanting to do their due diligence, talk to a bunch of different focus groups and organizations who might have an opinion on the matter. And it just, it kind of came to a head where they knew they wanted to change it. I think it was right around early July when they announced their intention to review it. But I don't think you review something like this and then come out and say, oh, you know what? We're actually going to keep it. So (laughs) they, they just got caught in a weird place where they knew what they wanted to do, 
and they knew it was going, it's a type of process that takes a long time and they weren't quite sure how to do it in a tidy manner. And it just ended up with, I mean, they're kind of following the same route that the Washington football team did, but they didn't really want to go Cleveland baseball team. So this is what they decided. Yeah. And right. I was going to bring up, I mean, it was pretty clear that Daniel Snyder did not want to make that change, but uh, just eventually felt that he had to because of uh, sponsor pressure and sort of was, you know, dragged kicking and screaming into doing (laughs) that. Is that the case with the Dolans, with whoever is making this decision for Cleveland? I mean, I think ultimately the fact that it changes is maybe more important than how they feel about it changing. But I suppose how they feel about it changing may be having an effect on how quickly it's happening. Yeah, not not really. I mean, I think Washington was pressured so much from a corporate standpoint that that sort of forced their hand. And with Cleveland, there wasn't that sort of pressure, Um, at least not. I mean, they they announced their intention to review the name the day after Washington switched to the football team. That was not a coincidence, of course. But I, I don't. There wasn't that sort of pressure financially yet. Had there been, I. It's pretty safe to say that they would have um, acted quickly. But yeah, it, it's a, it's a little bit different. They sort of. I mean, I guess you could say they were a little proactive about it. And then at the same time, they were kind of, I mean, people have been calling for this for years and years and years. And there have been people protesting outside the ballpark for years. And, you know, still to, you you can say they're proactive a little bit, but on the other hand, it's like, well, they're still going to profit off of this for another year. So um, they're proactive when it's convenient for them, I guess. Yeah, I was going to ask, what went into the decision to having acknowledged that the name needs to change, then to keep it and not go to sort of an interim, you know, Cleveland baseball team uh, until they're able to circle up on what they want uh, the name of the franchise to be going forward? Because they're in this sort of strange caught in between where they've acknowledged that this this name does harm <laughs> to communities and that they are responding to community pressure to to change it and create a franchise environment that is more welcoming to their entire fan base. But they're still going to stick with it for another year while they, I don't know, get new uniforms made or what have you. So do you, do you have a sense of what motivated the decision to sort of stand pat until they're able to make a, a wholesale change? No, and I think... The part of this process that kind of came to light in December when I think the New York Times first reported that they would be scrapping the name and and going with something else at some point, they weren't ready for that to leak out. And so they felt like they were rushed into a decision on how to handle this and how to present it to the fan base far sooner than they were ready to do so. So I think... That maybe played a role. They had been having ongoing discussions, but at that point, they really, I mean, they knew what they wanted to do. They had talked to enough people to get enough feedback to confirm their decision that they were going to change the name. But I don't know that they had finalized plans for the timetable or the transition to eventually get to a new name. And so I think this was in a haste kind of what they came up with. I don't know whether they believe that having... This as the team name for another year will encourage the fans who are who, who cling to the name to buy a bunch of merchandise for this final year. And so they they have said that they're going to donate the proceeds of that. So I, 
you know, there's, there's a lot, that's the one question that hasn't really, the, the one aspect that hasn't really made a lot of sense. Um, and I think it has to do with the fact that they just, in their perfect world, they would have had more time to figure out, okay, we know we want to change the name. How do we get there from where we're at? I don't know that they had finalized all of that when they made these decisions. And I don't know if it's possible for you to sum up the sentiment of the entire fan base, but <laughs> to the extent that you can, how do Cleveland fans feel about this? I, I assume there's some subset that's upset about it, some subset that's pleased about it, and some subset that just doesn't care and just wants to watch baseball regardless of what the team is actually called. But how would you sort of put percentages on those subsets if you can? Yeah, I mean, the way you described it is perfect because it really is so reflective of just the political nature of the country, too. I mean, it's 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 such a polarizing topic. It has been for years. Every year you have fans protesting the name and the logo outside of the ballpark on opening day. And then you have other fans protesting the protesters. I mean, it's it's this has gone on for so long and it's hard to... You know, I don't want to say it's just like a 50-50 split, but it sure seems like that only because anytime one person chimes in, someone from the opposite party <laughs> counteracts that. So it sure feels like it's pretty divided and polarizing. It's hard to handicap too because those who are displeased with this decision are certainly going to be the most vocal about it and the loudest. So it's it's hard to pinpoint maybe specific percentages but I mean yeah I've heard from many fans in the last couple months who say that they won't be a fan of the team anymore and they won't watch or pay attention um, because of a name change which to me personally is I mean I get that your memories are tied to this image that Mm -hmm. you know the script Indians or uh, the chief Wahoo or something like that from your your childhood or your past and I get that, but I, me personally, I've never understood how someone could care so much about a picture or <laughs> something like that. So it's 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 hard to it's hard to assess just because I think one segment of the fan base is just much more vocal about it than those who don't mind that this is happening. So last question on this topic because there are actually other things to <laughs> talk about when it comes to this team. But I know that you are pro walleye. Do you think that there is actually a leading candidate in the clubhouse currently? I don't mean literally in the clubhouse. I would be interested if the players have an opinion on this. But if you think there is a most likely potential replacement, I know that you are doing a a bracket with reader voting on this question at The Athletic. And I don't know if you have the results or whether you can divulge them now. But what do you think will happen? What will this team be called a year from now? Yeah, and so let me say, I actually don't feel that strongly about Walleye, but I just, I like <laughs> names that are unique, and yeah. I, I kind of like the Hazards as well, named after hmm. Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry, who I think won some battle on Lake Erie at some point, but anyway, <laughs> Spider seems to be the most popular. I think it would be interesting because, while not offensive, unless maybe some those who have arachnophobia, right? it's a little divisive too. There, are, It seems like there are a lot of people who love it and a lot of people who hate it and very few people who are indifferent. So that that's the thing. Like they, they need to nail this. Um, and I'm not really sure that anyone has come up with a suggestion that is has garnered widespread support. I know 
Guardians has been out there. That's I think it's been like lukewarm with the fan base. Those are basically the two most popular. I know some variation of Blues or Blue Sox because uh, the team was called the Blues initially back in the early 1900s. But yeah, nothing that I think I've seen that has just had overwhelming support. Well, now we can transition from getting rid of an offensive name to getting rid of a franchise icon. The other, <laughs> the other a happier topic. Yeah, yeah. the other uh, big storyline for Cleveland this offseason was the uh, consummation of a long uh, anticipated trade, sending Francisco Lindor away as well as Carlos Carrasco to the Mets. And you know, it seems like over the last year we've been talking a lot about the inevitability of this trade because it didn't seem likely that Cleveland was going to extend Lindor, and so it just came down to were they going to be able to extract sufficient value that their fans would feel that you know him being sent away was not in vain. And so I guess. We can talk about this trade from a couple of different angles, but the first that I will put to you is what is the front office's sense of how they did in netting a return for Lindor? So their vantage point of this is that the pandemic really screwed them because in a perfect world, they would have held, I mean, in a perfect world, if they had, if they could go back and do it, they would have traded Lindor a year earlier, probably to the Dodgers. And instead, you know, you hang on to him. And then it, it would have granted them more additional options. You know, they, if, if they were felt like they were out of it in July, they could have traded him then and he would have had two postseason runs at least for a team. So they could have gotten more for him then. And if there was no pandemic and they still traded him this past offseason, I think you would have had more suitors. Um, instead, the combination of one year, so it's a rental because the team acquiring him doesn't know for sure that He's going to sign long-term, especially since Cleveland claimed they went pretty hard after him and, and they couldn't come away with a deal. You have the lingering idea of, well, next offseason you could have Trevor Story on the free agent market, Carlos Correa, Corey Seager, Javi Baez. So that's a lot of really talented young shortstops. So they didn't think that they were going to come away with some overwhelming haul that was going to appease the fan base and keep them a contender and replenish the farm system. But I think they're content with all of those hurdles and the fact that they got two young, at least semi-intriguing shortstops, and then basically two 19, 20-year-old lottery tickets. I think from their standpoint, that's about all they could have done, especially when you consider there really were only two teams, the Mets and the Blue Jays, who were strongly involved in this. So... Yeah, they were caught in a really tricky situation, part of it their own doing just because of, of ownership and the financial side of things and part of it with the pandemic and, and the timing of it all. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of skepticism among non-Cleveland fans about ownership's claims that they essentially had to do this, that they can't afford to keep a player like Francisco Lindor, can't pay market rate for him because of their market. Do those explanations go over, well, not well with <laughs> Cleveland fans, but do they accept that at face value? Do they say, yes, we're a small market, we can't hack it, so they had no choice and just sort of resigned themselves to it? Or is there resentment? Who do Cleveland fans blame for this? Do they blame Lindor? Do they blame ownership? Do they blame the economic state of Major League Baseball? So it snowed. It has snowed in Cleveland like every single day 
of February. And the Dolans get blamed for that too. And <laughs> it's hard to argue with fans feeling that way. I think there's about 3% of the fan base, I would say, that will justify the decisions and you know use the small market mantra and say, eh, there's nothing we can do. We just got to hope to catch fire in October one year. There's a lot of resentment. And it, you can tell it's it's gradually turning into apathy, which I think is the worst possible sentiment a fan base can have toward its team in any sport. Yeah. And it's it's dangerous. I mean, I, it's hard because we can't see the books, right? So we have no idea. We'd like to dispute this stuff when Cleveland claims they lost tens of millions of dollars. I've heard thirty million after certain years. I've heard fifty million. There's no way to prove that or disprove it. I mean, we, we know that these teams aren't hurting as bad as they may claim. And if, if if you are losing that sort of money every year, you know, no one's forcing you to own this team. So there are questions we can ask like that. But also, this is not an owner who makes himself available to reporters very often or ever. It's an owner who has routinely stuck his foot in his mouth by saying things to this reporter like, enjoy him about Francisco Lindor. So, uh, you know, that that quote in particular has just kind of forecasted what the reaction was going to be the day this team traded him. Yeah. And it's played out, even though everybody in town knew that the day was inevitable, it's still, you know, tons of disgust. And a lot of fans aren't going to get over that for a long time. There are still fans in Cleveland who gripe about the, the franchise trading CC Sabathia and Cliff Lee in 2008 and 2009, which, yeah, at the time, like, if you want to be upset about that, I completely get it. You know, those trades eventually netted you Michael Brantley and Carlos Carrasco, but fans hold grudges and they're going to hold this one for a long time too. I think one of the remarkable things about that trade was that despite uh, what they netted in return, they did not get a major league ready outfielder, uh, which was not, you know, long for, for Cleveland's list of issues. They did sign Eddie Rosario to a one-year deal. So uh, we'll let you shift away from depressing topics for a moment <laughs> and talk to us hopefully about the Cleveland outfield. I don't think I set you up for success there with that <laughs> transition at all, did I? <laughs> but Tell us a little bit about what the expectations are for Rosario and what you think he brings to this outfield, which I think if we look at the last couple of years could be charitably described as lackluster. So their outfield WRC plus in 2020 was 53, <laughs> which was the second worst mark in baseball history ahead of only the 2020 Pirates. And that's not the sort of company you want to keep um, since the Pirates, I think everybody can agree, are the worst team in baseball. So... Yeah, Eddie Rosario or anybody on this podcast would have been an upgrade. And it, it's they, they're in a weird spot. They have a lot of players who are in that part of your career where you've proven you can hit minor league pitching and you've taken a few lumps in the majors, but like this is the season where you're either going to break out or you're going to prove maybe you don't belong. And in the outfield, especially guys like Oscar Mercado in center field, who was he was great as a rookie two years ago, couldn't hit anything last season. They want him to actually win that job and prove he can be an everyday center fielder. Guys like Daniel Johnson, Josh Naylor, Jordan Luplo, they'll be the outfielders who, if you just hit for a few days, you'll get to keep playing. And if you don't, they'll switch to somebody else. Maybe Bradley Zimmer, maybe Jake Bowers. So 
a lot of like 25 year olds who it's time to sink or swim. Uh, even Ahmed Rosario, who they got for Lindor, kind of fits into that category with probably not best suited at shortstop, but sure. if he's going to play somewhere else, you hope he can hit, but he he's only proven that really in one season. So yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of trial and error, I think, in 2021. So we are speaking to you the day after it was reported that Shane Bieber tested positive for COVID and, and had some mild symptoms and is expected to report to the team's facility soon. Hopefully there are no lingering after effects of that because he is incredibly important to this team and just a, a fun player to watch for everyone. It's been great to see him blossom over the last couple of years, but that just reminded me of the mess last season with Clevenger and Plesak, and I'm wondering what that was like to cover you know restricted as i'm sure you were because of the pandemic protocols you know whether you were able to get a sense of what was happening in that clubhouse and whether there are any hangover effects from that either in terms of you know continued clubhouse disharmony or maybe just the opposite maybe it brought together the other people on the team who were banded together against the people who were not respecting the rules <laughs> Yeah, a season that was only 60 games, but still provided plenty of drama and dysfunction, nice. right? It was it was bizarre because Ken Rosenthal and I had reported on this and we got wind of it and we're checking with certain people in the clubhouse as it was going on and, you know, there was no access. So you're doing this from afar and got a good sense of what happened. And, you know, the, these guys didn't commit crimes, but this team had been preaching for at that point, a month or so, that everybody was going to strictly adhere to the rules that they themselves set, and they didn't want to take any risks. They felt if they just stayed focused and kept their heads down and just went to the ballpark and then went to sleep every night for two months, that that would give them a leg up. And it did help. I mean, they they didn't have a positive COVID test during the season. So the, the just... it turned from like one little a uh, little mishap that maybe wouldn't have been such a huge deal into basically the defining moment of the season because Zach Plesak creates a like a 6 minute selfie video while driving a car yes where he blames it all on the media yeah <laughs> and then proceeds to explain everything he did which was everything we had reported so I think the fact that I, I think they Clevenger and Plesak rubbed their teammates the wrong way initially, and I think that aspect of it set some people over the edge. And I mean, you're talking about a, a clubhouse that has Carlos Carrasco in it, who had his own separate locker because they wanted to protect him and some some of the older coaches, the same thing. Um, they wanted to keep these guys safe because of everything that they had been through health-wise. And so it was, I think a lot of guys just took it as disrespect. And it's amazing in the heat of a 60-game season where we saw every game was critical. I mean, Cleveland, Chicago, and Minnesota, the three of them finished at one game separated three teams atop the division. And yet Plesak and Clevenger, who were both pitching really well, were sent ostracized and sent to to the alternate site in the middle of a season. So it's it was it was kind of surreal. I don't think anyone expected something like that to happen during that season. I think everybody's totally over it. I mean, Lindor was the player rep. He was the leader in the clubhouse. He was the one who was leading the meeting 
that resulted in Clevenger and Plesak being sent home to Cleveland um, instead of sticking with the team in Detroit. So I, I think that's in the past. I think they're looking at Plesak as being a guy who can be a workhorse in the rotation and throw 200 innings and maybe evolve into a leadership role even. So And Clevenger's gone. So it's it's a different, younger group. I think that's in the past. But the the message and the... It holds true in 2021. I mean, I, even in spring training, these guys are going to the complex and then you're going back to your hotel or your Airbnb and you're just staying home. I mean, you they, they it's the same thing, like no risks and nothing that's going to jeopardize how this team performs this season. Yeah, so you mentioned that Lindor was a leader in the clubhouse. Carrasco was the longest tenured member of the team, beloved by all. So what kind of void does that leave just from a a leadership perspective? Is there someone who is positioned to step into that role? Is uh, almost 40-year-old somehow still effective Oliver Perez, (laughs) who is now officially back? Is he the elder statesman in that clubhouse? Does he fill that kind of role? Is someone else ready to take on that mantle? That's going to be one of the more fascinating things to monitor. Terry Francona has always had his guys, whether it's I mean, his first two years, he had Jason Giambi in the clubhouse to serve yeah. that leadership role. And he had guys like Michael Brantley and Carlos Santana and Corey Kluber and Francisco Lindor and Josh Tomlin and Jason Kipnis. I mean, there were always people in there who could hold others accountable. And like their five-man rotation is, I mean, the, the rotation is the foundation of this team. It's still their strength. You, they have five really good, intriguing, high-ceiling starting pitchers. Zach Plesak's the oldest one. He just turned 26. So uh, Shane Bieber isn't like the most vocal guy. I don't know that he's going to yell at his teammates if if it calls for it. And they have plenty of guys who can lead by example. Jose Ramirez isn't the most... Uh, he, he can be chatty, but I don't think he's necessarily going to want to hold a team meeting. Um, so they'll have to lean on certain people like Oliver Perez or Roberto Perez... Uh, or Adam Plutko, guys who have been around, even if you've been around for three years, that's that's a lifetime in this clubhouse right now. One of those high upside starters is Tristan McKenzie, who, you know, if if Plesak and Clevenger were sort of the low point from a rotation perspective, McKenzie pitching at all last year was exciting for folks, just given how much time he had missed uh, with injury. And, you know, it was it was striking to see sort of where his fastball velocity was sitting in that first start. And it dipped slightly as the season progressed. But this was also the first big league action he'd ever seen in the first baseball action he'd seen in a long time. So what are the club's expectations for him, not only in terms of his performance on the mound, but how often he's going to be able to pitch? Because the, the knock on him, of course, has been that he's this this beanpole of a guy um, <laughs> and scouts worry about whether he has the physicality to sort of handle a full starter's workload. I wonder what they're expecting from him this year, which is probably a complicated question just given how strange everyone's workloads are going to be in 2021. Yeah, that's he's kind of the wild card here. Um, they don't want to go with a six-man rotation. I know some teams have suggested they're leaning that direction. They don't want to do that. And so if McKenzie's going to start the, the season with the Major League team, it wouldn't surprise me if they really limit him early on. He's thrown 33 innings in the last 30 months. So he's got a lot of endurance to prove. He was... You're right. He's so... I'm drawn to watching him pitch because I've never seen a pitcher with that frame. 
He's yeah. like six foot four, six foot five, and weighs like, I mean, he looks like, like the lamp in your office. Like it, he's, <laughs> he's so skinny and you wonder how he generates power. And yet at the same time, you, you think about that frame, he's got such long arms. And so he's throwing 94, 95, but that's, it, it's getting to you so soon that to hitters, it looks like it's a hundred miles an hour. So he's, he's got tons of potential. He's got a couple interesting off-speed pitches. Um, he says he is ready to make 30 starts and wants to be in the rotation for 162 games, which is great to hear. I, I think he's going to have to temper his expectations a little bit just because I don't think they're going to let him, you know, he's not going to throw 180 innings this season. In fact, I don't know how many guys are even going to do that. Uh, but I think they, the, the biggest thing for him would just, if he can, if he can just stay healthy all season, that's, that's a huge addition to him. I mean, he was, he was their top prospect for several years fell off of top 100 lists and everybody's radar because he had injuries that kept him out for a full season and then some, but he showed last year why he had that sort of hype. So it'll be interesting. I think if they could get 120 innings from him, that'd be a huge victory. You just posted a piece about Terry Francona. How is he? (laughs) Where do we start? (laughs) In the last six months, he's had... He had gastrointestinal issues that were actually bugging him for about a year. And that resulted in, I think he said upwards of like nine or 10 procedures over the course of a year. That was in August. That kept him out initially. He rejoined the team for a little bit and then had swelling that required him to go to the hospital where they discovered he had blood clotting. So that got a little, he described it as a little hairy. He had three surgeries in four days. He was in the ICU. He goes home. He recovers, but he's not. He didn't return to the team. He only managed 14 games last year, and the whole thought was, "All right, put this behind me. Get in better shape this winter. Lose some weight. Start exercising. Get to spring training healthy, and I can I can get through another season." Well, in November, he was being treated for gout because he had terrible pain in his foot, and then in January, they discovered he had a staph infection. So he had to have surgery to have part of his infected bone removed. And then now he's got a boot on the foot. He's got crutches. He's got a catheter in his arm. He has to wear a bag on his leg when he showers. He can't go out to the mound to make pitching changes. He's been a mess for years. He's kind of grown accustomed to it. But he says the super serious stuff from last season is in the past. And once he can get beyond this sort of nagging stuff with his foot, he thinks he'll be good to go. So it's, he always says, he said, you know, he was starting to feel good, but he never wants to describe himself as feeling good because everything's relative. So he says he was feeling average, which to anyone else would be great. So, you know, he's still got his self-deprecating humor and he hasn't lost that. So I think, I mean, personally, I was a little surprised that he pushed through this and even wanted to manage in 2021 after what he went through last year. But it shows you that this has been his life. He doesn't know what he would do if he wasn't managing. So I don't think he wants to find out yet. Part of what has enabled Cleveland to trade guys away when they start to get expensive and not extend someone like Lindor is that they have this sort of perpetual motion machine when it comes to their player development system. And like every other team in baseball, that machine was disrupted last year with the lack of a minor league season and only being able to have so many guys at the alternate site and then later at Instructs. So I'm curious 
what the team's approach was when trying to continue to advance the development of their prospects and kind of what their internal view of the state of the farm is after the year off. Yeah, I mean, it it certainly hurt every organization in the league, right? I mean, there are 30 teams that wish there was a minor league season in 2020. Where it hurts Cleveland the most is probably not on the pitching side, but on the position player side, they have like 300 middle infielders in their farm system who are like one season away from either planting themselves on top 100 lists or maybe just kind of like totally falling off the radar. And then the team doesn't have to rely on them turning into something. And they can kind of narrow their focus on like, okay, who might actually be the shortstop of the future? Who might be a potential center fielder? You know, they've changed the strategy. They've started just signing shortstop after shortstop on the international market. And even their first round draft pick last year was a shortstop because they were struggling drafting outfielders. They've been drafting a lot or signing a lot of contact first hitters, trying to just find guys that they can mold on the position player side because they've figured it out on the pitching side. They've collaborated so well with their scouting and with their development that they can identify these attributes in mostly college pitchers, but some high school, and turn them in. I mean, Shane Bieber was not on anyone's radar as he was coming up through the system, and then he's a unanimous Cy Young Award winner. Zach Plesak and Aaron Savali weren't on anyone's top 20 or top 30, and now here they are, legitimate starting pitchers at 25 and 26. So, yeah, I think... They're kind of set with the starting pitching for 2021 and even beyond a little bit because, like I said, like Bieber and Plesak are the elder statesmen here, and they're both. Bieber's got four years of control left, and he's that's everybody else in the rotation has even more. So they at least have bought themselves some time so that the pitching can catch up. They have a couple really high upside arms in like Daniel Espino, who was a first round pick a couple years ago, and Ethan Hankins, who was I think like the 35th pick in the draft, and then. On the position player side, I mean, that's where you alluded to the, the lack of outfielders and all the question marks in the lineup. And those aren't going to be solved. All those, they're not going to find the answers to all those spots in 2021 and probably even 2022. There are a lot of guys who are like around that A ball level who they really, really could have used a minor league season last year. And to not have it kind of sets their whole franchise timeline back a season. And, you know, they, they invited a lot of most of those guys, all the high upside guys were at the alternate site last season, but it's cool that they can hit off of, you know, when Plesak and Clevenger were there for a week, like that's a cool experience for those 19, 20 year olds. But otherwise it's, it's pretty much just spring training. So you're not getting the normal, the reps and, and the growth that you would have had in a normal minor league season. All right. Last question before I ask you for a win total prediction. Is there anyone else on this roster that fans have to worry about being dealt in the short term or medium term? And on a happier note, potentially, is there anyone who could be extended so that fans would not have to worry about them (laughs) being dealt? So they have zero dollars and zero cents committed beyond 2021. So you're saying they have financial flexibility. They have financial flexibility, which is all anyone wants in life, right? So Jose Ramirez and Roberto Perez have some team options uh, next year. Jose Ramirez has one for 2023 as well. Cesar Hernandez has a team option. But other than that, that's it. They don't owe anybody anything. So 
they should not have to trade anyone for financial reasons. Um, if they are just limping into the summer, I would not be surprised to hear Jose Ramirez's name pop up in trade conversation. But I, I think that's probably more of a topic of conversation for them a year from now. And even then, I'm not so sure. He, his contract is just so team-friendly. And so I, on the other question, you know, it would make a ton of sense to sign Bieber long-term. They believe he's got the makeup and the stuff to remain an elite starting pitcher for a long time. He's never had injury issues. Uh, he's, he's shown durability through 214 innings two years ago. So I think they really believe in him. It's more a question of what is the right price and the right length of a contract and how desperately does Bieber want an immediate lump sum of cash. It's pretty incredible that the unanimous Cy Young Award winner, the first unanimous in I think six years and the first unanimous in the American League and even longer, is going to be making like $570,000 in 2021. But, you know, that's the way Cleveland likes it. So, yeah, I wouldn't be shocked if Bieber signed a long-term deal. They like to hash this stuff out during spring training. So I think we would know one way or the other within the next month. All right. So give us your best guess for a win total for the 2021 team. So I think I'm going to say 84, but I really think there's a wide variety of potential outcomes here because they have so many guys in that that, that young but not super young range of, I mean, Josh Naylor could prove to be a really good hitter and an everyday player, or he could just be a complete bust. I think there's there's a huge wide range of outcomes there. And the same can be said for Bobby Bradley and Daniel Johnson and Oscar Mercado and Cal Quantrill and Tristan McKenzie and Aaron Savali and Emmanuel Classe. There are so many guys who, like, you could talk yourself into them having a good season, but you could also talk yourself into them being a complete waste of plate appearances or innings. So it leaves me to think, okay, it's probably somewhere between like 75 and 90. So I'll go somewhere in the middle and Mm -hmm. say 83, 84. All right. Well, you can find Zach on Twitter at Zach Meisel, M-E-I-S-E-L. You can find him writing regularly at The Athletic. You can hear him every week on the Selby is Godcast It is always a pleasure, even when not everything that we discuss is a pleasure. (laughs) But thank you for coming on again. I can't wait to talk to you guys next spring with the uh, Cleveland Walleyes 2022 preview. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, just wanted to close with a word about Brett Gardner. Maybe more than one word. The Yankees re-signed Gardner to a one-year $4 million deal on Friday with an option for a second year that would bring the total to $11 million if the team exercised it. Gardner will turn 38 in August. He'll be a bench player for the Yankees. They have kind of a crowded outfield picture. Clint Frazier certainly deserves to start in left. And then you've got Hicks and Judge and Stanton in the mix and Mike Tauchman, etc. Tyler Wade. Of course, the Yankees have had injury issues, so you never know when they might need Gardner. But they brought him back. They still seem to value him, not just as the longest tenured member of the team and a clubhouse mentor type, but as a player, he is still pretty productive. And I just feel like he is underrated. He's not the 
most scintillating player, and he is always overshadowed on the Yankees and in that outfield. But he has been a steady, solid performer for a long time now, and he's still good. He's been an above-average hitter easily over the past two years, still seems to be able to play defense. He gets on base. He's had some surprising juiced ball Yankee Stadium power in past seasons. And because he hasn't had any spectacular years, he did have five and six war seasons early on, which was driven by really elite defensive ratings at that point in his career. But he's just been sort of steadily in the two to four war range over the past seven, eight seasons. And that adds up. He's also been an excellent base runner, seventh in Fangraph's base running runs this century, as well as seventh in baseball reference double play runs this century. So just the ability to stay out of double plays. Also an 81% career stolen base success rate. And he's a kind of speedster the Yankees haven't had a lot of historically. He ranks third in stolen bases as a Yankee behind Derek Jeter and Ricky Henderson. And if you look at the two metrics I just mentioned, base running runs and double play runs, if you combine those, he actually leads the Yankees all time. He has just snuck ahead of Mickey Mantle and Derek Jeter. So you could say he's been the most valuable base runner and double play avoider in franchise history. Although I think prior to the early 50s and play-by-play data, that base running stat doesn't really account for non-stolen base value. And if you go by baseball reference war, which has him slightly higher than Fangraph's war, he now ranks 17th all-time on the Yankees position player war list, which is pretty impressive when you think of all of the impressive position players the Yankees have had and how many Hall of Famers are ahead of him. And he probably won't climb much higher up this list, but he's at 43 war now, according to baseball reference. If he were to put together another two-war season, he would vault up to 14th place. He'd pass Earl Coombs and Greg Nettles and Robinson Cano. He'd be right behind Tony Lazeri in Thurman Munson territory. If he stuck around for a couple more seasons, and if the Yankees did keep him around for a second season, then you could assume that he was pretty productive in the first. He could make a run at the all-time top 10. He's not going to get there, probably. He's almost seven war behind Bernie Williams, and that's a pretty tall order. But still, the fact that he's going to end up that close to the top 10, pretty impressive for a player who never was a top-ranked prospect, nationally speaking, was an all-star one time, never got any MVP votes or anything. It's hard for a Yankee to go under the radar, but I think he has managed it. And even if you look league-wide, So 2010 to 2020, and keep in mind that he missed almost the entire 2012 season, but even so, he ranks 14th in baseball reference war over that period among position players. He has more baseball reference war than Freddie Freeman, who was in the big leagues that entire time, although 2010 was a a late call-up in his rookie year. He is a win and a half behind Giancarlo Stanton over that period. He was in the big leagues that whole time. He's about two wins behind Josh Donaldson over that period, less than three behind behind Andrew McCutcheon. I mean, these are superstars. And Brett Gardner is right there. So I sort of have a soft spot for him because he's kind of the only remaining Yankee who dates back to my time actually rooting for the team just before I started working there. So that's part of it. But also, I think he is an underappreciated, productive player. So long may he stick around to ram his bat into the bat rack and the roof of the dugout. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Colleen Barr, Jake Devon, Zach Kreiser, Doug Lemoyne, and Joe Karras. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. 
You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon listing system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We'll be back with another Team Preview podcast next time. Looks like the A's and the Phillies are up, so have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you next week. Never mind all the nuclear missiles. Leave that up to important officials who can manufacture the present. Keep the presence on and try to presence. Should they say So I, I always have the fear every year that you all are not going to do this series. So thank you. For, I have, I, I understand why you wouldn't. I do. But uh, but I'm, just, I'm, always, I'm always relieved that you do it. I'll, I'll, I'll rein it in. I'll rein it in. We'll only, we'll only do 25 minutes on Liberator.